welcome to a special edition of Her Story on the Rocks. Normally, I'm sitting here with my co-host, Katie, and we're drinking and talking about famous women from history, but sometimes we like to stop and talk about women who are making history and writing about it. We have a very special guest here with us today, Gina Wilkinson. Welcome to the show. Oh, hi, Ellie. Thank you for having me. Well, we're so excited to talk about your book. Gina has moved around the world, been a journalist, moved into aid work, and then most interestingly lived in Baghdad during the reign of Saddam Hussein because your husband worked with UNICEF. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. That's the reason that we went there. Yes. Wow. So tell me a little bit about yourself because that's a really cool thing. Okay, well, I'm originally from Australia. I grew up in a variety of um, extremely small country towns in Western Australia, the sort where there's no traffic lights, um, many kangaroos, <laughs> um, and a couple um, pubs, and that's about it. Um, and I moved around a lot as a kid, and that sort of continued into my adult life. Uh, I spent 20 years living outside Australia, um, reporting as a journalist for organisations like the BBC, NPR, Australia's ABC. And uh, back in 2002, I was actually working in um, Bangkok in Thailand. Thailand. I was a correspondent there. And my husband's actually Canadian. He had followed me from Canada to Australia and then Australia to Bangkok. And while we were there, he was offered a job working with UNICEF in Bangkok, in Baghdad. And, you know, we thought he's been following me around the world, sort of a, Fair enough if he gets a chance to, you know, sort of progress his career. And it may seem very hard to believe, but at that time we were told to expect a very quiet posting. Uh, at that stage, Iraq was completely sealed off from the outside world by international sanctions. You couldn't fly in, you couldn't drive in. There were only a handful of foreigners allowed to live there. And uh, still, you know, even... Um, Despite that, you know, I was intrigued by the idea of going there. Baghdad has been at the centre of history. We're talking like thousands of years and modern times. And the fact that it was sealed off sort of appealed to me as a journalist. The big catch being Saddam Hussein didn't allow journalists to actually live in Baghdad. So I went in under a terrible visa that we'll probably talk about later. Um, but pretty much as soon as we crossed the border... Uh, George Bush gave his very famous um, Axis of Evil speech and it became very clear that we weren't going to have a, a quiet posting, that it was going to be quite volatile. And soon after I arrived, I um, was befriended by a, a lovely local lady uh, who I later discovered was actually an informant working for the regime and reporting back on where I went, what I did, who I spoke to, and you know, over the years, that relationship has sort of stayed with me. The questions I had about it, you know, was it just an unpleasant duty for her? Because, you know, that's not, if there's secret police show up at your door and say, we want you to do something, um, most people could not say no. That would be, you know, a very dangerous thing to try and do. So I don't blame her, but I also wondered, you know, was it a real friendship or was it just a horrible job that she had to do? And um, so that sort of inspired, that provided the starting point for this book. So it actually begins um, at the home of a um, secretary who works for a foreign embassy. Um, at the moment that the secret police come knocking on the door telling her she has to befriend her boss's wife and spy on her. So that sort of um, real life experience. 
uh, created the inspiration for the story. So the plot is fiction, but, you know, the the idea behind it or the inspiration that got me writing was that complicated relationship from my real life. Well, I think you just might be the most interesting person in the world. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure not. <laughs> so before we get too deep, one of the things we always love to do is make cocktails for the books so that while people get this on their summer reading list, they can sit out in their backyards with all their kangaroos and drink their cocktail while they read your book. So it's called When the Apricots Bloom, and it's two and a half ounces of whiskey, over one sugar cube with two dashes of bitters, apricot liqueur, and lemon peel. So I looked mm-hmm. up some I looked up some Iraqi cocktails and then kind of mixed together some other things and just did my best. <laughs> wow, well I love bitters and uh, so mm, yeah. It should be fun. Citrus sounds good, but apricot. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. can't wait (laughs) (laughs) so before um we dive into your characters which I am so obsessed with and I thought was such a great like interplay between different types of women can you set the scene a little bit for what's happening in Baghdad for women at this time, like in general, and regardless of like their class or like their nation of origin, like how are women being treated and existing in this society? Well, you know, that is um, actually, I'm glad you bring up that point um, because I think it actually is probably uh, quite different from what many people would imagine, especially if they sort of base their ideas on what they'd seen in the mainstream media during the Iraq war. And, you know, Saddam Hussein was a terrible um, dictator. He was a terrible human rights abuser and a murderer. Um, But, you know, on the other hand, he was also um, a promoter of women's rights. Uh, women in the Middle East, uh, in, the, in Iraq at that time, they had more rights than pretty much any other women in, in the Middle East in the, in the legal code in Iraq. They had high positions in government. Uh, my friends were doctors. They were engineers. They were um, lawyers, um, scientists. They drove themselves around when many, peop- when many women in the region were not allowed to do something like that. I only had one friend that wore a headscarf. And uh, it was, um, you know, quite a secular country at that, at that time. Um, it began to change a little bit as war loomed closer. Saddam seemed to make some concessions to some more hardline elements that wanted to control women and where that, what they did and what they wore. He made some concessions to them, I think, to shore up his power in the lead up to the Iraq war. But he himself actually... Um, you know, was uh, for many, many years a promoter of women's rights. Uh, He was a huge advocate of women's literacy and women's education, um, education of girls, and saw their potential um, economically. So, uh, you know, and I also found um, my Iraqi women friends to be, um, you know, not the stereotype of some sort of veiled submissive woman at all. Um, they had a lot of power in the workplace uh, from what I saw. I mean, you never know what's going on in someone's relationship, but from what I saw, they had a lot of power in the home. In fact, um, the Arabic word for housewife is actually goddess of the house. <laughs> so more like the ruler of the house. I like that. Um, I want that title. 
yeah, yeah, that's right. You can get some T-shirts printed. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, good one for Mother's Day, actually. <laughs> so, you know, women were not, uh, you know, in general, people were very oppressed in, in Iraq, but women weren't, I would say, more oppressed than the men were. He was sort of like an equal opportunity abuser, Saddam Hussein. Um, and, you know, it was um, generally a very high standard of education. Um, and because it had been formally colonised by Britain, um, many people spoke English. In fact, many of my friends spoke multiple languages. So a very highly educated um, population that until Saddam Hussein got them into a terrible spiral of war after war was actually, you know, a real thriving um, economy seen as one of the most cosmopolitan places in the Middle East. It was a huge um, destination for tourism. And in fact, I look at this period in my book in the in like the 70s, um, many Iraqis call it the golden years. There were tourists going there from all over the world to go to casinos and, and cafes and restaurants on the river. Um, there were a lot of foreigners living there, Americans in the oil business, uh, women working at, foreign women working as teachers and nurses. And in fact, one of the main characters in my book, her mother, was an, a, an American nurse working in Baghdad during that period. So, you know, it's a lot more complicated um, and I would say cosmopolitan um, city than I think people would assume um, based on probably what they saw on their TV screens, just if it was similar to what I saw on my TV screen. Yeah. Uh, that's incredible. I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I don't think that the, the picture is painted in the way that you just described it, which is why your book is so helpful um, and such a great addition to literature to just be able to add this other perspective from literally inside of a city that other people have only seen war-torn on the news. So incredible. So let's talk about your three main characters. We have a secretary and an artist and a diplomat's wife. And as you said, there's kind of this, they're representing all points of womanhood in the story and they're navigating a lot of different personal relationships. Can you kind of briefly introduce the three characters so people know what they're getting into and what type of women they're going to be, um, you know, when you read a book, they're your friends for the next couple of weeks. So who, who are our readers going to be friends with? Uh, well, for, for me, I mean, people have their different favorite characters from what I, what I, the feedback I've received. But for me, I would say, you know, it's, it's written from the point of view of three different women. So they're all central. But I guess my favorite is Huda. She is the secretary who is forced to be an informant for the secret police. And she comes from a fairly humble background and has sort of worked herself up and is now has a job, quite a well-paid job at a foreign embassy. Um, She started from humble background and her mother was, her grandmother was actually the village fortune teller. And so she often consults the grounds in the coffee cup to try and get, you know, inspiration, I guess, for ways to solve the various problems that she encounters, especially with the secret police roping her in to be an informant. And this is actually something that my Iraqi friends used to do quite often. It's quite a common thing that when you have your little coffee afterwards, someone will say, oh, I'll I'll look at your, um, I'll I'll read your future if you like, and they'll turn your coffee cup upside down and wait for it to um, dry and then have a look at the grounds. And uh, 
So I thought I would incorporate that. I, um, I actually loved that little, uh, I always loved it when my friends did that. So Huda is one character. She's sort of struggling with, you know, I guess the biggest moral issues. She's someone who is forced to do something that goes against her own moral code. And I really wanted to look at, you know, especially I guess as my background being um, a former war correspondent working in a lot of high stress environments, um, you know, I've seen people um, react in a lot of different ways to extreme pressure. And this was a good way to look at how, how do people or this character in particular behave when she's forced into a situation that goes against her own morals you know does she give in straight away does she try and negotiate some compromise does she just dig in and refuse to do it so I really wanted to look at that aspect of you know what do you what do you do when you're forced to do something that's contrary to your own Mm. beliefs uh the person that she spies on her name is Ali just like you (laughs) she's a young diplomat's wife (laughs) yeah um She's a former journalist, uh, so a lot of people ask, um, you know, are you Ali? And uh, we do actually have some similarities. Uh, Like Ali, I sort of concealed my past as a journalist, although if the authorities had just Googled Gina Wilkinson, it would have popped up with all my reporting. But I think like Ali, I sort of went, you know what, they're just going to think she's the wife, she's not important. So they probably won't even check, and that's exactly what happened. Or maybe they did, and maybe that's why I had an informant um, as my best friend. I'm glad you chose my name. (laughs) Very powerful, powerful name. (laughs) That's right, that's right. Um, And, uh, you know, like her, I actually entered Iraq under an awful um, visa category called the, uh, the dependent spouse which was quite the shock to go from, you know, being a foreign correspondent to a dependent spouse. And like Ali, I did sort of feel some of that, you know, disorientation and I guess loneliness. Um, I was the only foreign spouse in all of Baghdad, in in fact, in all of Iraq, of of the international community. And, um, but unlike her, I actually went out fairly soon and managed to get myself a part-time job um, working for the UN Oil for Food program. And the big difference, I guess, between us is that I knew that we were being watched. Uh, Before my husband and I went into Iraq, we were given a security briefing and we were told, you know, the office is definitely bugged. Assume your house is bugged. Your phone, your home phone will definitely be bugged. So if you want to have a private conversation, go for a walk. Go somewhere outside where there's no power source for a hidden microphone. So I knew from the very beginning that people were listening in. Um, I didn't realize it was my best friend who was monitoring me, um, but I was very conscious of that. And so unlike Ali, I did not go poking into sensitive matters. Uh, You know, she's on a quest to find out information. And um, I was very aware of the dangers I'd put, not just myself, you know, if I'd done something, gone poking around, I probably would have been, expelled but maybe I would have had to spend some time in jail but you know any Iraqi who had been around me who had driven me anywhere who I'd spoken to would have had much much worse consequences for them so I was very careful not to do anything prior to the war that would get people in trouble with the regime so I guess that's the big difference between the, the two of us so Ali's on a quest to find out about her mother who was a nurse when she was um Uh, during the golden years that we were talking about Mm -hmm. before. 
and her mum died very young. So Ali's looking for information about her and she's hiding the fact that she's an American dual citizenship. She's like an Australian American and also that she's a former journalist. Uh, the third character uh, is connected to both Ali and Huda. Uh, she, Ali um, meets her at an art gallery. And um, another thing people would probably be surprised to learn about Iraq um, and Baghdad in particular is its amazing art scene. It has a fantastic and very vibrant art scene. When I was there, there was at least two dozen independent art galleries operating. It was a huge, um, you know, relief I guess for me because that was one of the few places that I could go and associate with my friends without necessarily attracting the attention of the secret police like we would have in other places we had sort of a reason to be together and also it was just an inspiring community to you know be um, I guess led into uh, so Rania is an artist and art gallery owner she was a childhood friend of Hooders but she was actually quite wealthy. She is the daughter of the sheikh of um, Huda's tribe and they were close childhood friends but an event, um, I won't tell you about it because spoiler alert, um, you know, has driven them, yeah, they've been driven apart over the years and um, by having to inform on Ali and follow Ali about Huda and Rania are brought, brought back together again and Rania has sort of um, lost her fortune her family has, you know, suffered a lot and their fortunes disappeared. And when we meet her, she's selling off the last of her um, grandfather's once great library. Uh, so th they're the three main characters and it's narrated from their point of view. And um, they have to decide if they can trust each other and be honest with each other in order to, um, you know, uh, I guess, deal with that challenge of um, the secret police and their demands. Yeah, I, so much of this book was about grappling with motherhood and friendship and trust and your, you know, place of employment. And I just, is that what you wanted women to relate to as they read this? Like, regardless of where you're from or what your situation is, like, these are like kind of universal truths. Yeah, you, you're so right. Yes, that is exactly what I wanted um, people to get out of this book. Uh, you know, I well, good job then. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, you know, um, I have lived in many, many different places in the world, and you know, of course, we have um, differences in our cultures, and that's a wonderful thing. You know, the richness of the various cultures around the world is is you know something that we should celebrate. And I find also that, you know, despite the differences, we share so many things in common. And I think a lot of women are going to relate, you know, wherever they are in the world, are going to relate to the three characters. Um, Huda and Rania are dealing with rebellious teenagers. Um, I can definitely relate to that. Um, <laughs> Huda in particular is trying to juggle work and home life. That's something that is such a common um, struggle for women and um, you know Huda uh, also I guess she's always um, starting diets and then falling off the diet bandwagon you know so just even down to those sort of things and so I made a conscious choice to try and include you know scenes of life that I experienced in Baghdad that people would find anywhere 
cooking dinner for your kids. So it might be a very high stress scene where the the secret police arrive at the door, demand to come in, and Huda is at the same time trying to, um, uh, you know, roast eggplant and, uh, you know, dealing with them and trying to get her dinner organised at the same time. So I made a deliberate choice to try and, you know, show the female side of how women deal with these high stress environments because you know when you think about a country like Iraq and the stories that have come out of Iraq um, you know it's mostly or any high conflict country it tends to be stories by men um, often soldiers if we're talking about western writers and I really wanted to look at the the female angle and um, the female experience of living in this, you know, extreme pressure um, and the, the daily grind of, of it and how it impacts you uh, on the inside, you know, um, not so much like flying bullets and armoured vehicles, but, you know, things about how you look at yourself, um, how you... Um, navigate that situation of dishonesty of of having a relationship you know Huda especially when she starts off it's just a job for her but as her you know relationship progresses with Ali it becomes more and more difficult for her to keep lying um, to Ali to Rania she finds herself blackmailing people and lying stealing and um, I really wanted to you know, put people into the shoes of people that they might never get a chance to meet so that they could think, you know, wow, if I was in that situation, what would I have done? You know, maybe I would have done the same thing. And to highlight the things that we have in common, because I feel right now society is so divided. And that's why I think at the moment, books are you know even more important because it does give you that ability to step into somebody else's shoes someone you might never get the chance to meet whereas if we're talking social media you know it's it's um it's not something where you step into someone else's shoes um 280 characters isn't going to give you insight into um somebody's deepest challenges and emotional um you know dilemmas uh, and a lot of what we talk about now is conducted on social media and there are some limitations to that. There is, you know, some positives of social media for sure, but also I think um, perhaps a tendency to make snap judgments based on small amounts of information. But that's where, why books are so great because you can really look at the context, which is so important. And context is something that's often missing from social media. And um, so I hope, you know, when readers um, pick up this book that they do get that more complete picture of, um, you know, that, the situation and, and the story. Wow. I, that was beautiful. I hope you listen back to this and be really proud of everything you just said. because Oh, oh you're so kind. Thank you. That was very great. Did, did oh. this bring you, like, burden or pressure to talk about? So being... Uh, obviously, I, I was born and raised in the United States, and there's a very distinct um, narrative told about Iraq, right, in the United States and the Middle East. Did you feel pressure in in giving this story to people 
the way that you did because it really was woven. I, I love stories that are broken up into multiple people's narratives. I love that. So like, did you feel like this was something you had to shoulder or more something that like you were like dying to tell? Gee, you know, I think um, for me, I think it was the unanswered questions about um, my relationship, relationships in Iraq, Um, the things I've learned over the years working in high and living in high stress, um, extreme pressure situations about the mistakes that people can make. Uh, you know, the, the, the bad mistakes that good people can make. Um, and I guess those two things were the idea that drove me. And I think probably a lot of, you know, novelists are, well, I guess I can't really speak for them. But, you know, for me, I think in my writing, I'm often looking for answers that I didn't get in my real life. Because, you know, real life is so much messier than fiction. Uh, you know, there were many instances when I was writing this book where I thought, you know what, I will put in this real thing that happened to me in my real life and I would write it. And then afterwards I would read it and I would think, you know what, nobody is going to believe that. Um, because, you know, it has become apparent as, as, you know, as I moved from being a journalist to being a novelist, that, um, the cliche that uh, truth is stranger than fiction, actually, you know, there is a lot to that. Right. Um, because, you know, under extreme pressure, you can see um, people who are very meek suddenly become very courageous. People who are normally highly ethical can make, um, you know, very uncharacteristic mistakes. And um, you can't really do that in a novel. You have to at least lay the clues, even when it seems like a, a shocking plot twist. Afterward, it has to seem inevitable. You have to have hidden the clues along the way. But, you know, real life often doesn't work like that. Um, Real life is a lot messier. You don't often get the answers you want. You don't necessarily get the resolution um, of complex issues. And uh, I guess novels give us the ability as writers to maybe look at those things that we didn't get to answer in in our real life. Like as a journalist, did you have these moments where you had to do research on a specific thing or was there more like I'm going to draw this all from the experience that I had oh no I did a lot of research um even things like um I researched um the art and science of reading um the future in coffee grounds so I could actually put the correct (laughs) squiggles into the book and their meanings I studied um bird reports like bird studies to make sure I had the right birds in the right place I looked at crop reports I looked at weather reports um and I also um checked I had three close Iraqi friends who um read my manuscript and fact checked it for me um to make sure I didn't have anything wrong so they were an amazing um and wonderful source of help and also, um, I've got to say, inspiration. So I did do a lot of research in addition to my own um, experiences, a, a lot. Um, and, you know, I really am grateful to my Iraqi friends for helping with that, but not just the fact-checking but also with the inspiration because, um, you know, they were uh, 
have they've been through so much, you know, under Saddam Hussein. They really suffered a lot. And especially my women friends, they never allowed it to let them become bitter. They didn't get cynical. They always kept going. And even at the worst moments in Iraq, you know, I could turn to them and they would say, Gina, don't give up. Don't let this defeat you. Um, Keep going. And I think, you know, that they were also um, excited that I was writing this book that also um, gave me impetus to to keep going and also to make sure I got it right, um, that I did pay attention to the details. And that was very important to me, um, that my Iraqi friends, uh, you know, sort of supported the idea and they actually loved loved it. They were like, thank you so much for getting the story out because they also, you know, see the Western news and, um, you know, see how Westerners perceive um, Iraq as, you know, just a terrible war-torn place or hellish place and don't see any of the positive sides. And they really loved that I included um, the art scene, uh, places like Mutanabi Book Market, just an amazing, you know, centuries-old book market in Baghdad that, you know, if it was safe to go there for tourists, people would be flocking there from all over the world to, to visit it. Uh, you know, so they really liked that I showed, um, you know, just the, the normal side of life in Iraq, um, what it's like to be a, a normal Iraqi going about your daily business and that they're not, you know, some strange aliens that no one could relate to, that, uh, you know, we have so much in common. And uh, so they were also great in terms of um, helping with research and also with inspiration. Mm, That's incredible. So you said that like writing for you is more about kind of answering questions. Do you think that's why um, Huda is your favorite character or like, and this kind of a person, I know this is kind of a personal question, so feel free to deflect, but were you trying to answer questions about your relationship with your friend? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, I knew I wasn't going to get those answers in real life. Um, I had made a couple attempts and they had failed. Um, So, yeah, I guess a lot of novelists are looking for, you know, to complete the stories that they don't complete in in reality. Mm. Um, But also, you know, I love writing and, um, oh, I guess it's a love-hate relationship. Sometimes I hate it, but when it's going well, I'm like, woo you know. Um, and it's not something that you do for the money, that is for sure. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there's got to be some sort of, I guess, something inside you driving you to communicate um, this story that's something that makes you want to lock yourself in a room for, you know, potentially years on end rewriting the same sentence 25 times and wondering if anyone apart from your spouse will ever read it. (laughs) So, um, you know, I guess there's like that creative side of me and, um, you know, also just wanting, I I did find um, it to be sort of therapeutic in a way. Uh, you know, when I left Iraq, I was also there for the first year of the Iraq war. And after I left, I was diagnosed with um, PTSD and depression. 
Um, many, several of my friends were uh, murdered during the time I was there. My former workplace at the UN Oil for Food program was destroyed in a suicide bombing. One of my closest friends was killed that day and 22 of my other colleagues. And, you know, other things happened. Um, that, you know, I won't go into the long list of things, but I went to see um, a psychologist a couple of years later and I remember I was living in Sri Lanka actually at that time. I went to see the only psychologist on the island and she said to me, you know, when you are troubled by these recurring thoughts, just write them quickly down on a paper, just like one sentence, screw it up into a ball and throw it away. And, you know, I don't think that's a lasting um, necessarily a long-term solution, but, you know, weirdly enough, I did find it useful in the short term. <laughs> and, um, and I guess writing these sort of things is, uh, you know, helpful for me to make sense because when you're in the moment and in, when you're in reality, there's so much going on. And then when you have to look back and maybe make a plot, um, you can see, you know, when I look at my my own life, I can see much clear, more clearly now how things came to pass and why things came to pass that at the time seemed so um, unbelievable and, um, you know, disorienting, I guess. And so, you know, writing writing it down I think is a great way to to make sense sense of of the world at least that's what that's what I found Mm. well that this has been absolutely fabulous and I really one thing I absolutely love is that in this journey of my life our paths got to cross because I I just think there's a very you know specific handful of people that leave this world better than they found it and this book is a really a really big piece of that so i'm really glad that i got to be a part of reading it and talking to you oh thank you so much ali that's that's um lovely i really appreciate that thank you so much yeah so where can people find you where can they find this book when can they get it and start reading in all of their book clubs immediately Sure. Well, um, first of all, um, you should be able to get a copy at your local independent bookstore. If they don't already have it, um, just ask them and they can get it in. But it is also um, Target's um, book of the month in February. So there should still be copies um, at Target. It is going to be Costco's book of the month starting in May. Um, uh, It's available on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, any of your Big book chains should have it. Um, But, uh, yeah, if you can't find it at the bookstore, you usually visit or your preferred method, just contact them and they can get it in. But I'm pretty sure there are quite a few copies out there. So, um, yes, please, please do uh, enjoy. And I should also say there's an audio book narrated um, by a very talented um, British Syrian actress. She was born in Syria and... uh, moved to Britain as a child. Her name's Ragad Shah, and she's also an actress. Uh, so there's a connection between my book and Star Wars for your, for your Star Wars fans <laughs> out there. She was also a resistance fighter in um, The Rise of Skywalker, I believe. <laughs> so Great. on my Great. website, I just um, posted a uh, review uh, or a, a Q&A that I did with her about her, um, you know, 
being a book narrator um, and, and a bit about her background. So there's also the, the audio book and um, yeah, the different, you know, ebook, regular pen and paper books. So yes, please do get it. And um, you can see more on, on my website. There are links to where you can go to buy it. And I have a news page and also a newsletter where I put things like um, the interview with Ragged, the uh, real narrator. Um, recently, I actually had a cocktail on there, um, weirdly enough, of, of my own. <laughs> yeah, cocktail connection. Uh, you know, and then I have some more news about what books I'd recommend and just uh, various um, little bits of interesting snippets from around the world. Um, I did a little story just recently on a... Um, ever get back to traveling in Japan you can now stay at a hostel that's actually a bookstore and uh, they, they they freely advertise that they do not have comfortable mattresses they do not have fluffy pillows but they do have thousands of books so um, it depends you know whether your mattress is more important than your read um, yeah. it's interesting so you know I include various things on there as well, <laughs> well and on so you can catch up with me there too Thank you so much. It's been such a joy to talk to you. I'm so glad you could share this with us. And I am so sorry. I'm a complete silhouette at this point. (laughs) I look kind of cool like a superhero. But um, thank you so much for sharing this with us. And I can't wait to talk to you again soon. Uh, My pleasure, Ellie. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.